the National Archives podcast series, Dadland, presented by Keggy Carew. This talk was recorded on the 11th of May 2017 at the National Archives, Kew. It is 1964. I am seven and barely eye level with the counter of the hardware shop in Fareham High Street. Dad is buying paint. We have been in the shop a while and I'm getting bored. He is joking with the shop assistant. He hasn't enough cash to pay for everything, so he gets his checkbook out. I smile inwardly because I have just thought up a trick. On tiptoe, I look over the counter as Dad signs the cheque my eyes following his pen as it glides across the bottom right-hand corner. I squint a little, manage to hold my excitement in, then say, But Daddy, that's not your name. Dad looks down at me. The shop assistant looks down at me, then straight at Dad. I look up at them. Oh, delicious freeze-frame moment, for I have got the world to stop. I stretch it out with my round child's eyes. Power a tiny taste of it. I have trounced him at his own game, the bluff, the double bluff, which is it? Dad laughs uncomfortably. They are the minutest flickering seconds when he doesn't know what to do, but they are enough. The shop assistant looks back and forth. You rotter, Dad says in his foghorn voice, you sod. This is obviously quite new for the shop assistant who, even as he takes, his, takes the cheque and rings the till, is not 100% sure. We leave the shop. I am prancing with victory, because behind the bluster I know Dad is tickled pink, because I had him on the hop, which is normally his mischief. I was not to know it then, but I had taken my first unwitting step into his world, a place where you never quite knew where you were, where even this ruse of mine about his name turned out to be right on the money. So that kind of set up our relationship, which um, created its own, its own problems. But at school, um, I used to go into school and used to say to them, my dad's a spy and my mum's a Pakistani. And they didn't believe me on either count. But my mother was born in Pakistan, which was India then. And um, we had these incredible uh, newspaper reports from the Times of India and the Indian Statesman from 1945 that called Dad Lawrence of Burma and the mad Irishman and told fantastic stories of uh, guerrilla exploits of raising resistance behind the lines in Burma. And, I mean, we didn't obviously know the the half of that, but I did know that he had had this extraordinary um, life in the war. Um, He... He, um, I mean, I also knew that he, he, because he could speak French, very bad gutter French, um, that he'd been in France and that he'd known Mountbatten. But what I hadn't done was ever put the jigsaw together because Dad was just Dad. Um, And then our our world totally changed. Um, Dad remarried, consequently. Um, Dad and I drifted apart, which I will go into later. Uh, but when my stepmother died, uh, I had unrest- well, we had unrestricted access back to Dad again. And not just him, but also his attic. And in the attic were two metal trunks. And in the two metal trunks was another world. Um, and so 
ironically, I mean, that, so that started my journey, but it, ironically, it was also at the time where Dad began to have these memory lapses. Um, and I discovered it. The, fir- the first note I discovered was this one, which I found in his pocket. My name is Tom Carew, but I have forgotten yours. And I discovered that he was showing this note to, to everyone. Um, at the same time, uh, uh, an uh, invitation arrived for Dad to um, attend this thing called the Jedburgh 60th anniversary in 1944, um, 2004, um, at Milton Hall in Peterborough. Um, so I take Dad to the uh, reunion, and that is the first time I get an inkling of what the... SOE selectors were looking for because I'm suddenly in this room of uh, 80-year-old firebrands, mavericks, they're heckling in the speeches, Uh, they're they're obviously troublemakers, they're wandering off and um, they are what dad called the unmanageables. Um, And what basically what a a Jedburgh is, is a kind of super fit, super trained guerrilla warfare expert. They were dropped into France um, in very discreet teams of three, uh, two officers and a radio officer. It was the first direct collaboration with the American Secret Services. Um, and they, were, they, were, they weren't trinational teams because the, the makeup could be different, but they were from the Free French, the Americans, and the British. And their job was to arm train and organize the resistance, uh, the local partisans, to blow up bridges, ambush trains, um, uh, call in uh, RAF uh, airstrikes, get intelligence, uh, uh, send it back uh, via radio messages, Um, everything and anything to stop the Germans' retreat or the Germans getting to D-Day, to Normandy at D-Day. And so I became... (laughs) immersed in this sort of covert world of secret files here in the National Archives, um, finding out what Dad got up to at 24 years old, jumping out of a plane in the middle of the night um, with a canister of weapons, a Colt 45, and a cyanide pill in his top pocket. His team was codenamed Basile, and um, I was discovered as a very intensive secret training in the files they have. Oh, I learned all about the selection tests or the psychological, physical tests. There was lists of all the lessons they had to go to. They had to learn all about every German vehicle, every German gun, every French gun, every type of officer. They had to be able to take, take uh, you know, every type of gun apart and disarm it and blow up. Uh, trains and uh, uh, factories. Every, it, it is astonishingly interesting what they had to do in a very, very short sense of, amount of time. Um, one of the, the other thing uh, I was able to find were his reports. So one of the uh, the one one weekly report his one of his officers read uh, wrote about him. This officer takes glasses very easily. Is inclined to clown too much further down it wrote, is not a fool, but gives a good impression of one. Um, but anyway, they, they were, this is, this, this is, they got their uh, orders and dad's uh, team was to be dropped in the Jura, which was a, a funnel near the Belford Gap where 
all the Germans were funneling back to get back into Germany. It was a very, very dangerous part. Lots of SOE officers had been caught and executed at, at this point. Um, and in the... Uh, that's his team. His French co his French co-officer, Captain Rancourt, who was called um, Riviere. Uh, he had the French. All the French had to have a pseudonym in case they were caught, and their family would would also be um, targeted by the Germans. So they all had code names, and the French also had aliases for that reason. Um, the American, John Stoker's daughter contacted me recently, and her job is to make Oscars in America. She makes that's her job. Um, and her, that's her father was there, the Basile radio operator. So the other thing I discovered in the National Archives was where Dad spent his very first night when he was dropped into France all those years ago as a 24-year-old, having you know, his very first night in operation. And it was at this chateau, Chateau Grand and so I make a pilgrimage and I go with my husband Jonathan in our camper van and we I expect the whole place to be tarmacked over intermarche carry for nothing to be nothing to feel the same anyway but we arrive nobody's there this chateau is right in the middle of a forest it's very very atmospheric and the other thing is that there's a sign to an FFI memorial, um, the Force Française in Le de l'Intérieur, um, and it's the double cross which the Maquis used to, for, for the Maquis that died in the area. And it's 700 metres up into the forest, so I, we go, and it's through up the hills, and you can really imagine the Maquis living out in the forest. And then my heart drops because I get to the memorial and somebody's there and I wanted it for myself. I wanted just to be there on my own. But the person there turns out to be the grandson of the owner of the chateau at the time. And in very bad French, I explain who I am, why I'm there. And he asks if I would like to go and see the drop zone. So it was the last thing I was expecting to be able to A, be shown the drop zone for anybody to know where it still was, for it still to be there. And we walk another half an hour into the forest and we come across this incredible field that is so um, surrounded by trees and forests um, where the Mackie would be hiding, waiting for the planes to come. And I kind of tried to imagine it in sort of nighttime so many years ago with French voices and fires coming up and oxen in their traces with carts ready to, ke to collect the canisters of we weapons. And it was just a very, very moving moment for me. Um, I'm going to read you a, another part from the book. And I'm going to do that. What camaraderie they must have felt, these rugged Robin Hooders, dirt blending in with their suntans, torn shirts, torn neckerchiefs, nicotine-stained fingers, regrouping back in the forest after they've derailed the train, a warren of hiding places, lookouts, river crossings, navigating a network of intersecting paths, remembering glades, boulders, landmarks, the pine that leans at an angle after a storm, a pylon, a precipice. 
They move at night, learn the sky, sleep in a shepherd's shelter, a haystack, a convent, a barn, a tent in the trees made of parachute silk. Early morning mist is good cover. A bike is hidden in a cave, a car in a haystack. The Germans are now commandeering any form of transport. There is milk, butter if you are lucky, honey, eggs, bread, red wine, cheese, calvados, acorn coffee, a rabbit barbecued over the fire. This is where Dad gets his taste for rough red wine. They heck off a slice of cured meat with a knife, tear a thick hunk of bread, knock back a slug of brandy fermented from last year's dregs. The Mackie laugh as they wipe their mouths with their sleeves. They call it limonade de parachutiste. Dad teaches them how to unscrew sections of rail in one side, on one side of the track so that the whole train in one sleek motion will gracefully subside. They are eager, dirty, and alive. This was where it started, where Dad called being his own man, what Dad called being his own man. How would anything measure up to this? At night, above the clearing of their camp in the forest, there is a bowl of stars. And there is a thing about how will anything measure up to this. And this is something that travels through the book and actually has... Uh, you know that comes to bear fruit, not fruit, but that certainly uh, is borne out how how will things ever ever uh, live up to this so he cuts his teeth in France um, but in it 's Burma where he really makes his mark um, he joins SOE in Southeast, which is called Force 136. Again, I'm deeply in the National Archives files on, on this one because there was very little information in normal books. Um, there's a SOE book that Crookshank wrote, but there's not much out there. And um, it was here that I found really what he got up to and how he became called Lawrence of Burma. It was much more dangerous um, First of all, they can't blend in like they could in France. Uh, they're twice the size. Their footprints are twice the size. So even if they can disappear, their feet can't. Their feet can't. So they're very, very heavily dependent on their Burmese comrades. Um, and it's very political uh, because the moment the Burmese, the moment they've got rid of the Japanese, the Burmese are going to want their country back um, and want, going to want to get rid of the British. Uh, Dad absolutely loves the Burmese. He plays very heavily on his Irish heritage. Um, and one of the golden moments I had when I was doing this, apart from the National Archives, is when I tapped in a new configuration into Google and I found this SEAC film in the Imperial War Museum. So I make an appointment and I go, and I'm very nervous for some reason. I don't know why, but she, uh, the assistant sets up the real monitor in a room tells me I'm not allowed to photograph the monitor, and um, leave, but then leaves me to it. So, of course, I do photograph the monitor and watch my dad at 25 by this time um, walking out of the jungle uh, in a sarong, with heavily bearded, his, chest, his, his shirt's unbuttoned to here, and he is talking to two very buttoned-up spick-and-span generals, and they are listening, hanging on every word. And Dad has got this very wicked, I think, look on his face. I recognize him immediately for the impishness. And uh, it, to me, says, now who's listening to who? And uh, he really looks like the, the um, cat who's got the cream, I think, that uh, I suppose I would. Um, 
His second operation in Burma was to coordinate a national uprising against the Japanese with Aung San Suu Kyi's father, General Aung San, uh, who was planning to defect against the occupying Japanese. Um, everybody has a different agenda. Once the Japanese got rid of the Burmese, want their independence. The British colonial what want their empire back. The uh, army just want to get to Rangoon because they've got to, a war to win and they need the Burmese, and, and Force 136 guys have been chosen for their independent nature, and they have loyalties to the Burmese. Uh, it's really messy. There's some brilliant, brilliant telegrams here in the National Archives from Mountbatten, furious with his army colonel, who's just uh, an army general who's countermanded one of his orders to support SOE. Uh, the SOE, all the, the top brass can't stand the, these young mavericks on the ground. It's absolutely brilliant. They, the Force 136 do do an incredible job with the Burmese, and they do raise an amazing resistance, a national uprising. Um, but it does get very hot and bothered behind the scenes. And um, But by mid-June, Dad gets into big trouble, by the way, but you'll, you can read about that. By mid-June, Dad is back, Dad and Aung Sung are back in Rangoon. Um, and on June the 19th, Aung Sang's wife, King Ki, has a baby girl, and they call her Sue Ki. Um, and Dad's love never diminished for the Burmese. He, I think, uh, kept his sarongs, wore them around, and uh, it was a very, very formative time for him. Um, but the discovery of uh, Dad's spectacular war posed a problem or a question. Why did he make such a hash of it in peace? Uh, for someone so able and charismatic and so inventive, the question really does need asking because there were quite a few years in our... Uh, and I've got my brother here, so I'm very conscious... <laughs> my elder brother, who helped, I must say, sharpen the detail of some of this because my dad told Patrick things that he wouldn't necessarily tell his daughters, but particularly some good stuff that were happening in Burma, some of the torture methods they used, um, some, of, uh, some of the reasons why he managed to keep the Germans from raising one of the towns. Dad did this uh, blackmail with them and... Uh, Patrick was able to give me some fantastic information. So I have to be... Anyway, it is family, and they've been very, very gracious about me stealing Dad. Um, but there were lots of questions for me as to why things went so pear-shaped in our family. Um, Dad was conceived here, um, in Bally Seedy Castle in Kerry, uh, probably in the stables because my uh, grandfather, 26-year-old grandfather, was a farm manager um, and he was in charge of the horses. And my grandmother was 10 years older and she was a very well-to-do visitor to the castle, a widow from the First World War um, with two young sons. And the upshot is Dad is born out of wedlock in Ireland in 1919, which is a pretty big thing in Ireland, um, in the middle of the Troubles, in the middle of the Irish War of Independence. Um, I can only imagine the fall from grace for Maud, my grandmother. That's Dad in the pram and her two, the two half-brothers of, of, of Dad. Um, 
but Grandad and Maud are forced to flee uh, Ireland in 1921 in the middle of the Troubles when the house that, that Grandad is working in gets burnt to the ground. My eld, uh, dad's elder brother Desmond uh, told me once that he could remember when they left the perimeter of the uh, the fence of the of the house was um, sh- uh, there were sheep hung around the perimeter fence with their uh, with their throats cut, so that was a very very kind of branding image that he left Ireland with. So. Um, I have all my grandfather's diaries from 1920-something or other, um, and they, his voice also punctuates the story here. It's a very kind of dry, very revealing. It acts a bit like the Greek chorus. Um, and all sorts of yeah, revelations sort of came from that. Um, the other, the next part of the story is my mother's um, entrance to my father's story, obviously. She came from a very, very different background. Um, the last breath of the Raj, she was born in, in, in India, um, had a very cold childhood, sent away to school, 5,000 nautical miles at God knows what age, left there over Christmas in these big schools or with sort of austere grandparents, um, and went to a finishing school where she learned how to draw the diagrams of a tap. I have all her exercise books. Um, What to put in the laundry cupboard. Um, A drawing of a Barclays check. So her brothers (laughs) had a very different future, but for mum, with primogenitor, there was nothing really expected of her except to marry well. She escaped from her very stuffy world and became a codist um, and was one of the youngest families sent out to Salon. And she met my dad some years later in Trieste, where dad was running the uh, security office when it was blowing up with Tito and the McCarthy era and the fear of communists and stuff. Um, And dad gets posted, gets married, the second time, which is also another strand of this story, which I haven't really got time to go into, but he gets um, married and they get posted to Gibraltar, where they have a few very lovely happy years and sun oranges, but dad is bored stiff after having this incredible guerrilla expert warfare life. He's not interested in, um, oh, you know, parades and... I think he enjoyed teaching his cadets, but he's he's not really uh, up for staying in the army. And so he jacks it all in. And they come back to cold post-war Britain. Um, my brother's in this, po- photo- in this photograph. He's very angry because he's chopped out <laughs> of the one on the book. But he's not at all angry, but that's Patrick in the middle and my younger sister, Nikki. Um, Dad just does these crazy things. Within arriving home, his mother dies, and he invites our grandfather back to live with us without checking with mum. He buys a house without asking mum. Our whole life is very unconventional, and uh, you know it's full of mischief, surprises. A very exciting, brilliant dad to have, but there are these huge pressures because money was always very tight. Um, But one thing. One thing we did do is every summer we went to 
Spain in the Dormobile. We drove all the way down and we camped for free. And it always amazes me. There's right out in front of this pension. And the pension uh, senor, Jaime, I think his name was, didn't seem to didn't seem to mind at all. So we just set up our whole gypsy camp right outside this place for the whole month of August. And that's how you could be in those days. And we ran riot and it was a very, uh, well, I certainly have very wonderful memories of that time. Um, I used to drive the Dormobile and do the gears. I mean, one of the classic stories I tell it in, in, in the book. Uh, one time we were going down a very steep hill, no motorways, of course, in those days. And I, because I got car sick, I was sitting in the front. Dad made me a little bench, no seat belts or anything, I, over the uh, handbrake. And I had to change the gears. And he would go first, second, and I'd slot them in. And um, we were going, herring down this um, mad, you know, completely mad. And the actual uh, needle hit 100, 100 miles an hour in that thing, four children, mum, me, and I'm doing the game. And then dad turns around to me and shouts, brake, brake. And of course he's got the brake, but, you know, I'm going, oh my God, I've got the brake. But that was just always, always what it was like. Um, so quite a bit of irresponsible parenting went on. And the thing about it is he was a brilliant dad, but not a brilliant husband, um, 1960s Fairham, there was no call for uh, maverick personalities or guerrilla agents. Um, he was used to being his own boss, so he was pretty much unemployable, very good at getting jobs, very bad at keeping them, usually telling the people who, who was employing him how to do the job better. Um, the stresses were pretty much laid on my mother. Um, and yes, eventually... Uh, everything goes pear-shaped, and the marriage does not survive. Enter stepmother. I'm 17, and uh, to, to, to see Dad, I now have to enter a, a new world uh, with new rules where pretty much everything, in my view anyway, was under stepmother's governance. Um, and we had been brought up to have a very supple view of the world, and everything suddenly, to me, at 17, felt very rigid, and very strict, and it was a difficult time for me, anyway. Um, and just, I'm going to read a little bit to hopefully describe that. What bewildered me was that it was he who had, who had encouraged us to have an independent, questioning, not quite respectable way of seeing the world in the first place. The trouble was that didn't knit with what he now required of us. As far as stepmother was concerned, we were the wrong type. It must have been rotten for her. Four incumbents with greasy long hair, army jackets, desert boots, grunge before there was a name for it, Patrick, jobless and flatless in the summer break from Manchester University, me, too young and too old at the same time, a bit lippy, a lot shy, she seen too much, done too little. My younger sister, smart Alec, my younger brother, brain box, both still at school. We must have been like four big ugly ducklings, each one of us representing more financial drain. The doomed, excruciating relationship with my stepmother is inescapable. It is fixed forever and casts its shadow over the subsequent damage it wrought, however unspoken, in my relationship with Dad. My role was to be the difficult one. 
because I railed against Dad's sudden transition from my pedagogical father to this rationed man. So that was, it's, you know, it's, you, when you write a book, you have a few, especially a memoir, there are difficult decisions to make. And, um, you know, I found there were things that maybe, you know, that, that were, uh, I, that I could hardly leave out. And if I was going to put them in, I had to meet them head on. And so this is a brutally candid memoir. But I felt that if you're going to set sail, you can't half leave the shore. And I also wanted just to communicate to, it was a spectacular story, but it was also a very human story that, about things that we all go through in different times in our life, or some of the things that we certainly go through. Um, you kind of need empathy and ruthlessness, I think. And uh, Graham Greene actually uh, wrote, there is a splinter of ice inside the heart of a writer, and I think I had to find mine to write, to write this book. But... Um, Getting going to this, one of the things that Dad uh, had dementia had uh, was the fact that um, well the first part of it is this initial shock and fear and uh, not accepting it and he tries to outwit it with these very poignant moving notes I think um, I have no memory of writing this Tom but it could not have been it could not be written by by everyone, anyone else. I must be going bonkers, Tom. And there were a lot, I had lots and lots of these notes, which I, which I, I kept. Um, but as each layer peeled away, his essential self uh, remained, um, and he was very, very good with what he had. He, he still loved being centre of attention. He loved being funny. And the other thing, we had time, time to reconnect, and it was actually quite a, a, a memorable, a very special time, um, and the words that he had that uh, he could remember were very dad words, things like marvellous or scrumptious or yes. And I, I found that very interesting, that one's essential self. I don't know all the different types of dementia, but certainly with him, there was less. But what was there was very, very Tom. Um, I caught him walking around our garden and talking to the neighbor. Not caught him, but I... Um, overheard him say to the neighbour one day, uh, looking at her very closely, he said, I don't remember you, but I do remember your teeth. They're very distinctive. And, you know, another time he was going down, he was walking down the, um, uh, I lost him in the supermarket, and he was down looking, leaning very close to a lady who was looking at a laundry basket, and it was one of these plastic woven laundry baskets that you put laundry in. And he was leaning very close to her, and she was leaning away from him. And I get there just in time to hear him say, they leak, you know. So with what he had, he was the same. I, I, it was very, very, um, yeah, it was very funny. Um, but, and also the other thing is that everything became new. Because he couldn't remember anything, suddenly the, he'd never seen this bird before. He'd never seen these clouds before. And the world became completely full of wonder. I explain, um, I tell a story about watching Walking with Dinosaurs one day. He was absolutely riveted, thinking we were watching a David Attenborough program. And why would it not be? Well, dinosaurs existed at one point, but there we were watching dinosaurs hatch out of eggs and run across the savannah. And um, 
yeah, we had uh, we had we had a lot of laughs during that time. Um, and yeah, and there were uh, yes, but pro but the other thing about it is the past and present become kind of interwoven, which again was something that I think is reflected in the book, where as he was losing his past, it, 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 it's like a parallel journey. Two trains passing in the station, and I'm retrieving his past, and he's losing it. And uh, it felt like that. Um, when he died, his obituary came out. And I, again, the, the story wasn't finished. It just never seemed to finish, because I got two very extraordinary phone. I got two uh, letters that came through the obituary office at the te Telegraph and the Times. One was from Dad's first wife's brother, who sent me the most wonderful letters and photographs that I had not, never seen a picture of his first wife and discovered that they'd been married rather a long time and that um, actually Dad had married her on the same day that he married Mum which was, you know, obviously going to cause him trouble with mum later. But I, uh, another typical thing that he'd do that would have disastrous consequences that he blithely carried on. Um, and then the other letter I had was from a um, the husband of dad's first love. And it was his wife had kept a picture of dad all her life and his letters. And I got a very generous letter from this man who um, was always a little bit jealous of Dad. But Dad had the same photograph of uh, Babs, was her name, in his trunk. So I, it was very moving. It was like this very thin thread of love that had stretched across 70 years. Um, yeah. There, um, yeah, all sorts of people come in parachute into this book from... Uh, the director of the CIA to Patricia Highsmith, Jeremy Clarkson even makes an appearance. Um, I accumulated and accumulated. And one minute I'd be in a jungle, the next minute I'd be on a Kerry road with a mined log with nine IR, IRA um, people tied to it, just about to be blown up. Things cropped up that would just never survive in fiction. And um, I've been thinking quite a lot about fiction and non-fiction and how in non-fiction there's this expectation to be cool and reasonable. And then, you know, I'm thinking, well, actually, life isn't like that. So if there's one place where one has to kind of get under the skin, and that includes emotions, for me, it's in memoir writing. Um, it's an extraordinary journey of a one man through the sort of 20th century that sort of ends up in a pop-up shop in Shoreditch, but I will let I will let you read that, and I will finish with just one last bit. And this one I haven't read before in a reading, and I'm thinking I might read it in, cathedral, in Salisbury Cathedral next week, but you can let me know if you think it's inappropriate. Um, Dad has begun sticking up pictures of semi-naked women all over the sitting room walls. He cuts them out from magazines and newspapers. Nothing too risque. Bosoms, bums, and bikini-clad buxom beauties, oiled thighs and long legs, cleavages presented provocatively, lips pouting, eyes come hithering. Nothing explicit or vulgar, but girls, and lots of them. There is even one pinned to the front door, um, pavement side, what do you want these up here for, Dad? Why not? 
I'm stumped for a second. Well, maybe all your ladies coming in to look after you won't like it. He thinks this is some kind of politically correct feminist disapproval because next time I come, amongst the pin-up ladies, there are an equal number of pin-up pictures of six-pack men. Why on earth do you want these, Dad? I ask, incredulous. I don't. Everyone complained about the ladies, so I put up some men. I laugh. But why do you want all the naked ladies? He looks at me in disbelief as, as though I haven't a single functioning brain cell. Because they're beautiful, he says. Yeah, that, was, that was our journey through dementia. Okay. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.